Usually when people are unemployed, their spending falls. Here, we saw the reverse. For the people who did get unemployment benefits consistently, they raised their spending by perhaps 20%. We're throwing around, you know, numbers like 1.9 trillion, and, and there's lots of things in those packages. One thing that unemployment insurance benefits has going for it is that it's really well targeted, right? It delivers relief to families that we know need it. During the pandemic, we've seen the largest expansion of unemployment benefits in the history of the United States. On this episode of The Pie, we'll look at what bank account data can tell us about the job search and spending responses to those benefit changes. How is that different from what economic models would have predicted? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it slices, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in this episode, we're going to look at the spending and job search impacts of expanded unemployment benefits. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. Before the pandemic, if you lost your job, your unemployment benefit depended on the state you worked in. The most you could get was a check equal to half your previous wage for up to 26 weeks. But a lot of states offered much less. The safety net was full of holes. In March of 2020, the CARES Act responded to the economic fallout of COVID-19 by expanding who was eligible for benefits and how long people could collect those benefits. And it raised the level of benefits with a $600 a week supplement that lasted through last July. Instead of receiving at most half of their prior wages, unemployed workers got a benefit that averaged about one and a half times their previous earnings. I talked to Peter Ganong, assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy, and Fiona Gregg, managing director and co-director of J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, about what we can learn from this enormous expansion in unemployment benefits. Fiona, one of the arguments that we heard over the summer last year is that this extra federal benefit shouldn't be extended because people were getting more money than they had made in their previous jobs and that that would keep people from going back to work or searching for a new job. Now, what data did you look at to check those concerns? We looked at the universe of Chase checking accounts and people who had been receiving unemployment insurance into that Chase checking account. So that's our measure of of knowing that one lost a job and was receiving benefits. Within that population, we then look to see when people exited unemployment insurance, which we infer meant that people went back to work, right? Because in this environment, given the timeframe that we're looking at, it was not the case that people were exiting because they had run the course of those full benefits. And so what we examined was this this weekly exit rate from unemployment benefits. And over time, you know, we compare that in 2020 to 2019. And so a couple things struck us. Number one, actually exit rates are lower in 2020 than 2019. Number two, they barely increased at all 
around the time that the $600 expired. You would think that if it was the case that those you know, very generous $600 supplements were deterring or discouraging people from going back to work, that right when they would expire, you would expect people to suddenly go back to work and they would continue right. to exit at an, at an elevated rate. But we don't see that. In fact, we see that more than half of people who received the $600 supplement had exited prior to the expiration of the $600. And that, in fact, only, you know, an incremental 3.5% or 3.7% of people of exits occurred right around that expiration. In other words, there was a very short-lived and modest increase in exits that occurred when the $600 expired, which suggests that, you know, we don't think that these $600 supplements were really discouraging people from returning to work. It appears that the costs associated with finding a job, searching for a job were really, really high in the pandemic, both because the unemployment rate was high, the labor market conditions weren't very good, but also because it's a public health crisis. And, uh, you know, I know that the kind of research you do can't really get into, you know, personal motivation for people, but isn't it also the case that the economy started coming back and companies started rehiring people by May, early June of last year, a couple of months before those benefits were supposed to expire. And if you were rehired, and if you had the option to go back to your job, you kind of had to because you were no longer eligible for those benefits, right? That's right. And we did see a huge increase in recalls. So we were able actually to use the checking account data to compare your new job to your old job and to identify instances where people were being recalled to their yeah. old employer. And, um, you know, in the in the early spring, before the pandemic hit, that recall rate was about 20%. So 20% of the time when people lost a job and they returned to work, they returned to their old employer. Now that recall rate did surge. It surged a lot. And, and indeed around, you know, June, it was more more like 75%. So 75% of people exiting unemployment insurance were going back to their old employers. So you're right that certainly if they were called back, they would probably need to take that job. Otherwise, they would likely lose their UI benefits. This helps to explain in some sense one of the reasons why we, we saw that the disincentive effect was small was you know, people or legislators who were skeptical about the $600 supplement said it's going to discourage people searching for jobs. But right. if most people are waiting to go back to their old job, you you know, we don't want those people to be searching for a new job because we'd like them to be able to go back to their old job in a way that is safe to do in a time that is safe to do so. And so the the whole logic of discouraging job search, which is usually the big concern with unemployment benefits, is significantly diminished when workers are going to go back to their old jobs, which is the pattern that we saw through the summer here. So clearly, as with so many parts of the economy over the pandemic over the last year, um, this upended a lot of what people like you, economists, thought might happen or expected to happen, and policymakers too. When you look at how job seekers reacted to this extra unemployment benefit, 
What, what do you see that change? I mean, clearly it was a historical change. Um, but how did you compare that with what happened previously since we've never seen a pandemic before in our lifetimes? That's a great question, Tess. So one of the most robust findings in economics research is that there's a disincentive effect of unemployment benefits. So when the level of unemployment benefits is higher, people are stay on benefits for longer um, and spend more take more time to find a job. And the exactly how big the disincentive effect is is, is debated, but it's uh, pretty substantial in most most studies. And so what we did was we compared what's the disincentive effect during the pandemic to 18 prior studies that were done before the pandemic. And what we found is that the disincentive effect was smaller during the pandemic than any of the 18 studies that were covered in this prior review of the hmm. literature. And so just to summarize, I, I would say the disincentive effect was tiny. And we don't understand yet why. Hmm. There's a bunch of good reasons why you might think that the disincentive effect is smaller. And what we're hoping to work on uh, together this spring is trying to better understand why was the disincentive effect so small during this period. We think that the fact that so many workers were going back to their prior jobs is an important piece of the story, but Hmm. I don't think we fully pieced together the story at all yet. I would add two possible hypotheses. One is obviously, you know, many of us aren't leaving our homes (laughs) and it's hard to do all of the usual, you know, kind of pavement pounding that you might do Hmm. physically or literally or figuratively when you're searching for a job when it's a public health crisis. Another possibility could be that, you know, in general, other forces or people are keeping people out of the labor market. And obviously one that we've heard a lot about or read a lot about is childcare, family constraints, Hmm. you know, needing to stay at home and people falling out of the workforce. And of course, you're not required to be searching for a job because that was a requirement that was waived during the pandemic. So the fact that people are still receiving unemployment insurance wouldn't necessarily give you any indication as to whether these people are still actively looking for work or not. After the break, how have unemployment benefits affected spending? And does this money go back into the economy at large? One of the other incentives for these increased unemployment benefits was to keep money rolling through the economy because historically people stop spending when they lose a job. Obviously, they want to keep the money that they have. So this money was supposed to act as a stimulus. But we heard a lot last year about how a good chunk of both uh, the stimulus checks and the unemployment boost was ending up in uh, savings accounts or paying off debt you found something different. Now, what were you measuring and what did you find? Peter? So the second most robust finding in the literature after there being a disincentive is that usually when people are unemployed, their spending falls. Um, and there's mm-hmm. you know countless studies showing that. It makes sense because unemployment benefits don't usually replace all of, all of income. And yeah. here we saw the reverse. So here spending actually went up for households that uh, were unemployed and receiving unemployment benefits. It's although this safety net was greatly expanded. I want to be clear that we we still know that people fell through the cracks, and so the there were holes or weaknesses in the expansion. But for the people who did get unemployment benefits consistently, they raised their spending by perhaps twenty percent 
when in, in a pre-pandemic world, they might have cut their spending by, say, 10% instead. The other thing that was really surprising about that increase in spending was also what was happening to people who remained employed, right? At this time, uh, throughout the summer, actually, spending had fallen for most people considerably, right? On the order of 20, 30, 40%, depending on the income bracket. And so the notion that those who were unemployed and receiving unemployment insurance, that their spending actually increased relative to baseline was surprising, as Peter says, not just in light of the prior literature and the prior evidence we have on spending response to job loss, but um, also surprising in light of the general trends we we saw in spending at this time when people were at home and, and generally not spending. Any idea what would account for that? A couple things. So obviously, as Peter says, the, the replacement rate was very generous. So they were earning mm-hmm. more, including inclusive of those benefits, while unemployed than they had been before. So they literally just had more money than they yeah. did before. So it's maybe not unsurprising that they increased their spending given their increased purchasing power. The other thing is that, you know, job losses were concentrated among low-income families. So they were Mm. concentrated among, you know, workers in the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, you know, the retail industry. And these tend to be generally lower paid workers. And so it's not unsurprising that there was room for them to grow in terms of Mm. how much more they could be spending on on a weekly basis, given their typical kind of baseline level of earnings and spending. So let's talk about what all this means as the debate continues over whether to, uh, again, extend this unemployment boost. It's scheduled to expire on March 15th. Um, Peter, what do you see in this research that should inform that debate? It seems pretty clear that the extra money is going back into the economy and it's not keeping people from looking for work. Thoughts? So there have been a couple of proposals that are on on the table right now. So there was a Republican proposal to extend the $300 supplement per week through the end of June. The Biden administration has proposed extending the $400 supplement through the end of September. So those are sort of those dates and those amounts are roughly the, the parameters that are sort of under in the policy discussion right now. One thing that I take away from our research is that the way we think about usually setting unemployment benefits where we are quite concerned about the disincentive effect of those benefits didn't apply in 2020. And so it's the disincentive effects are probably going to be smaller in 2021 also than they were before the pandemic. Now, I think 2021 is going to be quite different than 2020 because we are already seeing that more and more Americans are getting vaccinated and that will help life to return to normal. Mm-hmm. And so my the wonky economist in me would love to see uh, unemployment benefit supplements actually be tied to local vaccination rates. Because the idea is basically we want to support people who have lost their jobs until the economy is ready to reopen. But we actually don't want to support people on unemployment benefits after the economy is ready to reopen, because that's when we need to make a transition to having having everyone be able to go back to work. But I also think that the the Biden administration proposal of extending $400 a week to till the end of September seems pretty solid to me as well. Fiona, thoughts on, on policymaking based out of kind of what you all found here? Well, I, I would say two things. One, obviously, as we're throwing around, you know, numbers like $1.9 trillion and and there's lots of things in those packages. One thing that unemployment insurance benefits has going for it is that it's really well targeted, right? It hmm. delivers relief to families that we know need it. 
uh, in that these are families who have lost a job, they don't have their source of livelihood. And so uh, it makes a lot of sense uh, to channel relief to those families. And we're also seeing kind of a hardening of the, the, the problem of job loss during this recession in, in twofold. Number one, we're seeing a, an increase in the share of people who have been unemployed for a long period of time, who have been unemployed actually since March of last year. So they're coming up on a full year of wow. being unemployed. Uh, we're also seeing an increase um, as of October, roughly half of people who were receiving unemployment insurance had already received unemployment insurance once before. In other words, they were experiencing a, re- a repeated spell of jobless benefits. And the reason why that matters is that that just tells us that, you know, there's a specific segment of the population that's really bearing the brunt of this these labor market conditions, right? And so for that reason, also, it makes sense to continue to provide this segment of the population relief. And sort of comparing and contrasting jobless benefits to, say, you know, stimulus checks, which are, yeah. you know, nearly universal or they, they could be designed to be targeted. You know, you might expect, and I think qualitatively, Peter and I might <laughs> might agree that we think the marginal propensity to consume out of, you know, an unemployment insurance check is probably higher than, say, out of a stimulus check. So if you are thinking about this in the context of, you know, macroeconomic stimulus, this is maybe a fairly effective tool. But I agree with Peter's wonky idea around tying this to vaccinations and that, you know, what's what's really the problem in our economy is the pandemic. And right. if we could get that under control, then we could all come out and play and, you know, be merry and go to restaurants and and that would, you know, create jobs. And so in some sense, the job disincentive effect, the lack thereof that we're seeing is very tenuous. And so the minute it feels like we've turned a corner on this pandemic and it might be viable for us to work and see one another, then, you know, the conditions under which we see work discouragement uh, might no longer be there. And it might make sense, you know, to, to taper off these unemployment insurance benefits. Um, this just reminds Fiona, something you said reminded me of one more idea that I wanted to add, which is there's this question about how much of the $1.9 trillion stimulus will be spent quickly. There's something embedded in our research that I actually think is potentially quite important for thinking about that issue, which is that you often will see the argument, well, savings are high. And so if savings are high, that means people will save an extra dollar that they're given by the government. Right. And in the right. context of unemployment benefits, that has not proven to be the case. So for example, even for households that had already accumulated quite a bit of savings from the $600 supplement, we still saw a large suspending spending response to additional unemployment benefit supplements. My view is that to the extent that the government ships money out, a good chunk of that money will be spent quickly, even for people who've accumulated savings, which is potentially a little bit counterintuitive. Right. It's also worth underscoring the distributional impacts of job losses that have occurred during the pandemic, you know, much higher job loss rates among Black and Hispanic workers, among women, mm. women of color. And so as we think about the specific groups of people for whom this pandemic has been catastrophic financially, 
they in many ways are already more financially vulnerable from the outset. And so I think it's worth acknowledging, you know, which, which groups of people are experiencing job loss as we consider, you know, the costs and benefits of this program. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you. Pi is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland. 